This morning's reading is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 18. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, or because I hold you in my heart, for you all, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of that, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, have much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretence or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Thank you for reading that passage. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that this morning we can have it read publicly with no worries at all um, about consequence of that. Um, We pray, God, that it would speak to us today. Um, Thank you that it is living, it is alive. Um, We pray, God, that it would um, focus our attention on Jesus. Um, It would cause us to... uh, think on our walk with him and for our faith to be stretched and grow this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Brother Andrew, who's the founder of Open Doors, um, died a few weeks ago now. Um, he's the guy who wrote the book God Smuggler, um, which I've got on the table here. And um, he was kind of um, visiting, I guess, kind of Eastern European countries at the time. Um, and discovered a church which didn't have a Bible. Discovered churches where they were being oppressed by the authorities. Um, and he felt drawn by the Lord to Revelation 3 verse 2. Which says to strengthen what remains and is about to die. Which is the ministry of open doors. And I don't know. Let's see by way of raising your hand. Who here had to check whether they were followed to church this morning? Yeah I thought so. <laughs> None of you. None of you had to give a second thought to whether you were being intimidated 
whether you were being watched, whether you were being stared at. Now imagine you're in somewhere like India and you're the only Christian in your village and every time you step out of your front door, you're being stared at. Every time you move and you want to fill up the water at the well, you're, you're not only stared at, but you're verbally abused. Maybe that verbal abuse becomes physical abuse. All because you follow Jesus. Every time you leave the home, you, you think, well, am I being watched? Am I being followed? Is this safe for me? Let alone secret church gatherings. Let alone having a time of prayer together or singing songs. Just existing. Just being. Your whole world is kind of um, watched and oppressed by those who don't want you to follow Jesus. And the passage that we had read this morning from Philippians chapter 1, written by the Apostle Paul, written from prison. And what we forget about our New Testament is the whole of your New Testament is written by persecuted Christians. And it's written to persecuted Christians. It's not written to a bunch of people that are living in comfort. It's not written to a bunch of people that don't have to check over their shoulder as to whether they're being followed. It's written to people who, to follow Jesus is dangerous. To follow Jesus is a life of adventure. It's exciting, yes, but also it's really costly. Taking up your cross and following me, as Jesus says, is a real thing. Not just a metaphor. It's something that physically happened. And Paul is writing from prison. And this is what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I want you to know, Wittersee Baptist Church, that your prayer and your action and your giving is partnership in the gospel with those who are persecuted. You're already doing it, but we can continue to do it because partnership is an ongoing thing. If I was in prison, I haven't been in prison ever other than visiting Um, I've never served time for anything. But I would feel, especially if I was there for my faith, that kind of life had stopped to some degree. Oh, I'm not in freedom anymore. I can't preach on a Sunday in a church. I can't just go where I want, when I want. And I'd probably be full of anxiety, of worry, of uncertainty. And yet Paul's talking about partnership. Paul's talking about joy. Paul's talking about prayer. And so my first point this morning I want to remind you of is the power of prayer. Now that might seem like a really Sunday school title, but actually it's because it's so important. He opens his letter to this church in Philippi by telling them that he prays for them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. And he prays with joy. And I'm really struck by that. Because if I'm in prison, and I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm writing to this church in Philippi in freedom, do you know what I'm saying at the start of my letter? Guys, can you pray for me, please? It really sucks here. I hate it. I want to get out really soon. I'm here with like the proper criminals, and then you've got me. It's awful. Will you pray for me that God would miraculously deliver me from my chains? Is that not what you would put if you were writing a letter? Maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe I'm not holy enough. That, but that's, that's what I would kind of, that's where I would lean to. And yet Paul's saying, no, I'm praying for you. 
And you can see from verse 7 and 8 the affection he has for this group of believers. He prays that love would abound in them. That they would approve what is excellent. That they would be pure. That they would be blameless. I love this kind of heart that we see from Paul. It's almost, if you could summarize what he's saying, he's saying, make them more like Jesus. I'm praying for you, church in Philippi, that you're more like your saviour. His prayer isn't, get me out of here, it's make them more like Jesus. And it's because Paul knows the power of prayer. That's why he prays in that way. And he knows the difference it makes for the believer. Even when he's in chains and seemingly game over, he's praying these bold prayers. And it reminds me of a friend I met recently from the Gulf. And she said this. She said, my friends, in my country we are dying for Jesus. The least that you can do is live for him. In my country we are dying the least you can do is live for him. And it makes me think of this here, where Paul's in prison, it would seem like game over, and yet he's the one that's praying these life-giving prayers for the church in Philippi. And I um, met a guy from Southeast Asia, from Malaysia, back in the summer, a guy called Pastor Ned, who's kind of connected with our One Church program. And he told me this story about the power of prayer. And I've been so struck by it ever since. He said there was this Muslim boy, teenage boy, and uh, he'd been having this dream every single night. And what had happened is he'd, he'd go to bed, uh, he'd sleep for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, he'd have this really vivid dream. The dream would be so vivid that it would wake him up in a shock, and then it was so vivid he couldn't then get back to sleep. And the dream he had was the same dream every single night. And this had been going on for months and months and months. Now, I don't know how many of you get by with just maybe half an hour to one hour sleep every night. Very few of us. And so this boy was falling asleep in school. This boy's like education was going down the pan. And his dad had tried everything. He'd gone to kind of... Uh, he'd gone to his kind of... His friends. He'd gone to doctors. He'd gone to kind of spiritual people. He'd tried... He'd gone to his imam. he tried everything and nothing had worked. And the boy was having this same dream every night. And it was of a man in white. And this man in white says the boy's name and then says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. So the boy would wake up saying, I want to follow the man in white, but I don't have a clue who he is. Who's this man in white? And he would say to people, who's this man in white? Nobody would know who he is. Nobody would know what those words would mean. And one day he fell asleep in school. And his classmate was kind of giving him the elbow to wake him up. And so after class, he said, why do you keep falling asleep? Why are your grades going down? He says, because I've not been sleeping at home. It's been going on for months and months and months. I've been having this dream and I can't then get back to sleep. He said, well, what's the dream? And so he explains that a man in white says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And this boy that he shares to happens to be a Christian. And he goes, I've heard those words somewhere before. But I don't know where. So he goes back, he goes to his pastor, he says, there's a boy in my school who... And he's like, oh, it's John. It's Jesus speaking in John 14. And then they face this choice. For us, we go, wow, this is an open goal, I can share the gospel. But in Malaysia, it's not so simple. You can't share your Christian faith with Muslims. 
You do that, you're going to end up in prison. You're going to end up in a detention center where you're treated as if you're mentally ill and you need recalibrating. And you can spend from two weeks to two years in somewhere like that. And so they have to be really, really careful. And so what the pastor does is he goes to the dad and he says, Father of this son, I have a solution for your son's sleeping problem. I know how he can sleep. We have to introduce him to someone, the man of his dream. And the father's like, at this point, remember this is a Muslim guy. He's like, anything. I'll do anything. Even if it's this Christianity stuff, fine. And so the pastor uh, shares the good news of Jesus with this boy, shares the person you've been dreaming of is Jesus that shares these words in John 14. The boy goes, I want to follow him then, so starts following Jesus. That night sleeps perfectly and has slept perfectly ever since. In fact, so remarkable was the story that the mum, the dad, the siblings have all come to faith too. And that the church grows even amongst what we would call Muslim background believers, those that were following Islam but now follow Christ. And you ask Ned, well, how does that happen? Because you're not doing this, you're not preaching on a Sunday, you're not sharing the good news in the way that we would in the UK perhaps. And he says, we pray and we pray, and we pray. Because they know the power of prayer. Remember, there's a, there's a church in North Africa that's been kind of... It's not illegal to be a Christian, but you can't open a bank account. Um, your kids can't go to school. You can't see a doctor. You can't own a home. Basically, to say you're a Christian is to have no life at all. And of course you can't publicly share your faith. And yet this pastor said, we are disappointed if we don't baptise 100 new believers every month. You go, how? So, well, we pray 24-7. We have homes across the city where we just pray 24-7 because it's all we can do. So it's all we do is pray. And there's something hugely powerful about prayer, isn't there? We forget how powerful prayer is. Not because... We say the right words. I am not eloquent. You'd have already picked that up. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Prayer is about me talking to my Father in heaven. We've talked about the one who is strong and is mighty. Do we believe that? If we believe that, we would pray. We would call upon him to do remarkable things. To change situations. To change hearts and lives. And this is a father in heaven who desires to hear from his children. The founder of Open Doors, Brother Andrew, famously says, our prayers go where we cannot. And there is no prison wall that is too thick for our prayers. I love that idea. We sometimes talk about our prayers bouncing off the ceiling, right? That's how it can feel. There's no prison wall that's too thick for your prayer. That when we pray, it makes a difference. That when Steve prayed and we prayed this morning, those prayers make a difference. We do believe that, don't we? Otherwise, why pray? Why bother? And when you read here, Paul, in prison, in chains, saying, I pray with joy for you. It should remind us of how important prayer is. How valuable it is to the mission and how important it is to the lifeblood of everything you do as church and everything we do as those who follow after Jesus. Paul continues in his letter, 
verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I love this verse because it's a reminder of God's character and how good he is. Um, He completes what he starts. He's a completer finisher. He's not like you and me, probably, with endless lists of DIY projects that we were supposed to do four or five years ago that have just been parked. Paul is so sure about his commitment to God's people. He recognizes that if God starts a work in you, he will bring it to completion. Salvation is secure. I love what Jesus cries out from the cross. He doesn't cry, he doesn't cry out, it is partially done. Does he? What does he cry out? It is finished. Our sin, our shame, our rejection of God, the price paid for our sin in full so that we can know him and know him eternally. And when you spend time with the persecuted church, you soon realize that verses like Philippians 1.6, they hold dearly to their heart. Because, you know, when life's hard, we need to know that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion, don't we? It's all right on our best day. But on our worst day, or when we're in the battle, we need to know the truth of these verses. I've got a picture that hopefully will appear on the screen. Um, There we go. Um, This is a picture I took in Iraq in March. um, And I'm on a... A mountainside, if you like. Down below um, is um, the Nineveh Plain. So that's where Jonah would have walked. So Mosul today is Nineveh. Um, and Mosul isn't probably maybe 40, 50k from, from where I took this photo. And um, down on the plain you can see at the bottom there, that's where so-called Islamic State from 2014 through to 2017 rolled through in Iraq and in Syria. And uh, they would come across ancient Christian communities and they would burn down churches, they would burn down homes and they would do their worst to the Christians that were present. And so uh, at the foot of this mountain, you can't see the town, is a little town called Al-Kosh. Uh, no more than a village, really. And so Islamic State got to within 5, 10 kilometers of this point. And so the whole of the villagers ran for their lives, as you and I would have done. And yet, 10 days later, some brave villagers decided to return. They returned to al Kosh under the cover of night. And uh, what they decided to do was to start building um, and erecting these crosses on the mountainside. So uh, they started putting up crosses, and you can just see at the bottom there, you can see a light. Some of them are backlit. Some of them, they put their best Christmas decorations on, uh, pink neon lights and yellows and greens and reds. And what that would mean at night when it's completely pitch black, as Islamic State are down in the bottom of the Nineveh Plain, they would look up on the mountainside and they would see all these crosses lighting up. An act of defiance, yes... Um, but also a symbolic statement. We're not going anywhere. We're Christians. We're salt and light for this place. We're not going anywhere. And the cross is the symbol, isn't it, of if there was ever a symbol of God completes and finishes what he starts, it's that. If there was ever a symbol of, well, how do I know God still loves me? 
It's that. It's the cross of Christ. The church in Iraq are known as the church of the cross. It's what they're known as. I wonder what the church in the UK would be known as. I wonder what the church in this area would be known as. I mean, I can't think of a greater title to try and attain to than to be known as the Church of the Cross, like our brothers and sisters in Iraq. And literally what they did was they put the cross between them and Islamic State. Between them and inevitable death, they put the cross of Christ. Because they know to live is Christ and to die is gain. They know that they are people of the resurrection. And the most important thing for them was not whether they live or whether they die, but whether they're faithful to Jesus or not. And that's a challenge for us in our Western context, isn't it? The most important thing is not whether I live or whether I die or whether I make lots of money or even whether I'm happy. It's whether I'm faithful to Jesus or not. Will I rest behind the cross like our brothers and sisters in Iraq? And it's in those moments, you imagine them building the cross on the mountainside with Islamic State in the bottom. You need to know, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's not done with you yet. And that's true for us as well, isn't it? God's not done with you yet. You can have every confidence. I don't know what's going on in any of your lives. I'm a complete stranger today in many senses. But I can say this. The God who has rescued you will not let you go. That with every breath we can live and we can serve him and join in the great commission of sharing the hope of Jesus with the world. And that is applicable to us right now in this place. No matter the circumstance, no matter the uncertainty... And you might say, well, we're living in very uncertain times in the UK. Sure. (laughs) We've had how many prime ministers in however many days? I get all that. And there's a cost of living crisis. and There's this and there's that. I get all that. What if there are opportunities for the good news of Jesus? What if there are opportunities for the church to show there's more to life than this? Paul says this. Moving on to my final point, verse 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, remember he's in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's encouragement here is despite him being in chains and despite him being in prison, is the gospel is being advanced. That's remarkable, isn't it? And actually, you think about the persecuted church, you think of countries like China. There are probably 100 million plus Christians in China. Does that not blow your mind? It should do. I mean, the population of the UK is like 60 million people. Imagine if all of them were Christian plus another 40 million. And we're not even scratching the surface of the church in China. Or the church in Iran, which is completely like hammered on every side and yet grows remarkably. 
That's what Paul's talking about here. He's in change, yet the gospel is being advanced. The whole of the people that are imprisoning Paul know why he's there. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. No, he's here because he follows Jesus. And so he's obviously been using that and sharing that with them. And it has echoes for me of Joseph's story from Genesis. And that beautiful line that Joseph delivers to his brothers when he says, look, you meant evil against me. You know, there was slander... There was a near-death experience that was throwing me in a pit. I mean, we've not been particularly loving in our brotherly relationship. As for you, you meant evil against me, he says to his brothers. But God meant it for good. It's this belief, it's this kind of conviction that we have to hold that God can and will use every and all situations for our good and for his glory. That even applies in the challenging days that we live in today. The logic that Paul has is this, in terms of the advancement of the good news of Jesus. If I'm in prison, and the gospel, gospel can be advanced, okay? If I'm in prison, I'm in chains, and the good news can go forward. Then you guys who are in freedom, how much more can you do? Now let's think about our persecuted family. Have no access to the word of God in lots of places. Have no resource, no money, no time, no nothing, yet the gospel goes forward. How much can we do? How much can we pray? How much can we stand with them shoulder to shoulder? And there's a story I want to kind of finish with and share with you. And I pray it has a kind of similar um, impact that kind of Paul would have had to the church in Philippi with that encouragement to be emboldened in sharing the good news of Jesus. I pray that this story has a similar kind of impact for you. And it's the story of Wang Ming Dao. You may have heard it, but it's just, it's a brilliant story. He's a Chinese evangelist who was arrested by the government in China. The reason for his arrest was that he said, Jesus is Lord, not the Communist Party. And for that, he was arrested and he was in prison. And he was told, Wang Ming Dao, you can go free. All you need to do is you need to sign this long list of paper that says, I will never talk about Jesus again. I will not lead. I will not share my faith. I will not meet other Christians. And you know what Wang Ming Dao did? He signed it. And he had this niggle in his heart <laughs> about three weeks later. And he went, oh made a huge mistake and a huge error. And so he went back to the Chinese authorities and he said, you know that long list of paper that I signed my life away and said I would not do these things? Rip it up. And so they imprisoned him for 22 years in solitary confinement. Have a think about what 22 years of your life looks like. Some of you are not 22 yet. Pause for a moment. It's a long time, isn't it? What's 22 years ago? The year 2000. Welcoming it in with a bit of Cliff Richard. Some people thinking the world was going to end because it was the year 2000. For some of us, that might seem like yesterday, but it's a long time ago. You only need to look at fashion to see that. He was in prison for 22 years. And remember, I said, he's an evangelist. If you've ever met an evangelist, they like to talk. Solitary confinement is the worst place for an evangelist to be. You would think this would be hopeless. How is the gospel going to be advanced? What is the point in all of this? 
Well, ever the evangelist, Wang Mingdao realized something. He realized that in his cell, all he had was this kind of bed and a pit toilet. But he realized that all of the pit toilets were connected by sewage pipes to other cells. And so he began to preach down the toilet. Every day, he'd start sharing about Jesus down the toilet. And over the course of 22 years in prison, 96 people responded to the good news of Jesus. That otherwise wouldn't have heard the good news. 96 people were converted to Christianity because some bloke preached down the toilet. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a method. I'm not suggesting you get a bit of porcelain out for next Sunday. But it's remarkable. This is what he says. I had no Bible, no pulpit, no audience, no pen, no paper. I could do nothing, nothing except get to know God. And for 22 years, it's the greatest relationship that I've ever known. When I was in the cell, the only thing that I was focused on was getting to know Jesus. It was only me and him in that cell. You need to build yourself a cell where it's only you and Jesus. That last line for me challenges me to my core. You need to build yourself a cell. In other words, you have too much that gets in the way. All this stuff that distracts so much. That means we don't focus enough on our walk with him. So my friends, I want to encourage you to have a boldness in the good news of Jesus. Let's learn from our persecuted church family and put into practice the truth that God can and will use you wherever you find yourself. The only question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Our family around the world want us to stand shoulder to shoulder with them, to be part of this wider story of being one church, one family that we'd spur one another on, we'd encourage one another, we'd suffer with those who are suffering, and we'd rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And so I want to encourage you to keep praying, to keep giving, to keep standing with our persecuted family. And I've got a whole bunch of kind of some resources here if you want to know more about that. If you want to sign up to get our kind of more direct mailing so you can pray beyond Southeast Asia if you like then please do that. I've got a little card to do that. If you've not read God's Smuggler, if you're heading towards being a teenager and if you've not read that, I read it at 15. Um, I mean, the Bible changed my life, but I tell you, God's Smuggler has got to be one of the most influential books that I've ever read. Um, as a, I want to do this. <laughs> I want to be bold in my Christian faith. I want, I want this adventure of what it means to follow in God, even if it's really hard. So I'd encourage you, we can give you a free copy of that as well. Um, this morning but please do be encouraged to pray and to pray bold prayers both in your own context but also for your family around the world let's pray God we recognize there is a power in prayer because of who we talk to we've sung about you this morning the one who's set rivers in motion the one who's flung stars into space Wow, the God of all creation longs and desires that we might call you Father. And we rejoice that we can do that through Jesus Christ this morning. That once we were far off, but we can be brought near. 
God, would you forgive us for all of our sin, all of the stuff that just gets in the way. Forgive us, God, for when we have too much going on, that we haven't built ourselves a cell where we invest into our relationship with you, Jesus. Where our priorities are all wrong. Where we don't pray bold prayers. Where we think, oh, God's done with us. Well, no, he's not, because he who began a work in us will bring it to completion. Because, God, you're good. Because you're not like us. You finish what you start. And we thank you, God, for our persecuted church family who cling to some of these words. Who know what it means to walk through the fire and yet are still concerned with their faithfulness to you, God. We pray wherever they find themselves right now, whether they're meeting in secret, whether they're in caves, jungles, having picnics in the park, whatever they may be doing in this moment, we pray, God, that you would strengthen them to continue to worship you, continue to reach out with the good news of Jesus. And we pray that for us, God, that you'd stir our hearts, that you'd provoke us to carry a greater boldness just as Paul had that in prison and it had an impact upon the believers, we pray that because of our persecuted church family who share Jesus no matter the cost, that it would encourage us to do that too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.